This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Thank you for joining us. School busing has been controversial since the 1960s. Racial conflict exploded when a court ordered schools to desegregate students by busing them from one part of the city to another. George Wallace campaigned for the presidency on the busing issue. And though he came in third, far behind Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey, he still did better than most third party candidates. Busing was not popular. But busing has come to be accepted as a partial solution to racial segregation in many parts of the country. Even in Boston, racial animosities have subsided and busing continues. Part of the solution has been to give students some choice in the school that they are able to attend. And if a school's oversubscribed, a lottery is used to place them in the school, even if it is their second or third or fourth choice, not their first choice. But does busing work in the contemporary period? Now that all the conflict has eased, at least to some extent, does this solution to segregation in American education, does this solution seem to work? That question has been addressed in a thought-provoking paper by a team of researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, uh, Joshua Angris, Gertrude Greg Loeb, Clements Adu, I may not have all these uh, correct, and, and Parag Pothic have just released a paper entitled Still Worth the Trip, School Busing Effects in Boston and New York City. Now, they have the great advantage of being able to use a lottery, the lottery data, to estimate the effects of busing. So they're able to give us more accurate information than many of the prior studies of busing. So I'm very pleased to have with me today on the Education Exchange, Parag Pothic. Thank you, Parag, for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. Parag, you and your colleagues have undertaken a fascinating study. Uh, we want to discuss your methods in some detail, but our listeners first want to know the answer to that provocative question. Does busing work in Boston and New York? Well, as with everything, Paul, it depends on what does it work means. So, you know, modern era busing uh, that we see in a lot of big urban districts is not the same as busing in the 60s and 70s. Busing is no longer court ordered. Uh, you know, there's still substantial travel um, to schools outside of your neighborhood. And that travel is quite expensive. Um, so what we do in this study is look at the consequences of... Um, but what do you find? You've dodged my question, Barack. I want oh, yeah. Uh, let me tell you... On the methods, we want to know, what did you find? Does busing, busing work in the sense that do kids learn more? Are they more likely to go to college? What, yeah, so let me answer your question. Are there question. some real academic benefits to busing? Busing uh, does succeed in integrating the school environment for children who are assigned to travel and those who've opted to travel. So um, across a range of uh, indicators like the makeup of their peers at schools, uh, the schools that travelers attend are more integrated. Um, but uh, that appears not to have much effect on learning as measured by standardized tests and SAT and uh, it has no effect on college going. So um, that's why I said it depends on what works means. If the intention is to um, 
Yeah, but of course, a lot of the early work, if we go back to James Coleman, which was an extremely influential study, that was a nationwide study of uh, equal educational opportunity. Mm -hmm. He said that most things about a school didn't make that much difference. It was mostly family background. But there was one thing that did seem to work. It seemed to be the case that if Black students went to a desegregated school, they learned more, and it had no adverse effects on white students. And that was a very influential study because it really suggested that if we desegregated schools, we would get some academic benefits for African-American students without uh, causing any harm to white students. Yeah, you know, you have to remember the time period in which Coleman was doing his work, right? Um, we're thinking about the um, 1960s and 70s, and I think there's pretty convincing evidence that court-mandated busing from that era did improve education outcomes. Um, for minority students in particular. So um, John Gurian's work or Rucker Johnson's work um, has shown evidence of that. Uh, I think a big part of that, that story involves um, resources. So um, when you went to schools that were um, you know, uh, more integrated, those schools tended to have um, greater resources. In our study, and when we look at modern era busing in, in big city school districts, uh, the resources are pretty similar across schools. So what we think we're isolating is holding fixed resources. What are the direct effects of um, leaving your neighborhood? Uh, they are to integrate uh, the school environment somewhat, okay, holding resources fixed. And that appears not to influence downstream educational outcomes. So you said they integrate the uh, schools uh, to some extent. To what extent do we get uh... Uh, more integration if you're bus to school some distance? In both Boston and New York City, one, one way that we measure this in the study is we ask uh, what fraction of your peers are Black students. Um, so if you're a Black applicant who's bust and is subject to our uh, experiment uh, caused by the assignment process, the rationing in the assignment process, your typical uh, fraction of peers who are Black is about 50%. If you leave your neighborhood, that goes down by about 10 percentage points. So 40% of your peers are black. Um, now, who are your peers instead? Uh, we see a, an increase in the fraction of your peers who are Hispanic. So that goes up about 6%. Um, and uh, we see a similar pattern in New York City. Um, so that's one measure of integration. Uh, another measure of integration involves uh, what's called minority isolation. So that's a measure of whether you're at a school that has more than 90% of students who are Black or Hispanic. This is uh, something that people who study um, desegregation have focused on. Um, this is kind of an extreme measure of racial isolation. And there in Boston, if you're a Black applicant who's bust uh, out of your neighborhood, uh, minority isolation goes down by about 17 percentage points off a base of about 40%. So let me say that another way, 40% of kids in Boston who are Black in our study uh, attend a school that's more than 90% Black or Hispanic. When you say racial isolation, you're treating it, people who are Hispanic and African-American backgrounds as the same. For the racial isolation measure. Yeah, right? so is that, is how do you, what's the, what's the rationale for that? Because, you know, when I look at African-American experience in the United States and the Hispanic-American experience, I don't see too much that's, 
the same. I see a lot of differences. So, and, and I know a lot of academics are out there and, and, and the right racial isolation literature treats two quite different groups as if they're identical. So what's, what's the rationale for that? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question, Paul. Um, I don't think there is a great rationale for that. So we're mostly following precedent here. I, if there's one kind of big fact about the character of these big urban districts in the last 15 to 20 years is there's been a dramatic increase in the enrollment of Hispanic students. So when we think about busing in the 60s and 70s, it was in large part motivated by integrating black students with non-black non students. But uh, now in Boston, um, the proportion of Hispanic students in the district in the last 20 years has doubled. Uh, and um, in many parts of the city, there are more uh, Hispanic students than, than black students. Um, so um, what we do in the project is we actually look at several measures of, of integration. So we look at peer share black, peer share Hispanic, peer share black and Hispanic, and as well as these ra racial isolation measures. And, and there's a consistent picture that uh, black students, whether you look at you know black students with black peers or black students with black and Hispanic peers, there's uh, evidence that busing succeeds in integrating. The effects for Hispanic students are, are not as pronounced. Um, so uh, busing is not doing mu as much of an integrate, integratory role uh, as it is for, for Black students. And so what is the percentage white in the Boston school system? In our study, um, white or Asian students in Boston, it's about 22%. So that's white or Asian. How about white? What percent yeah, is white? I, I would guess about 12%. 12% white. Yeah. So, you know, the, the busing program, many people say, I don't know, if, there's lots of factors involved here, but many people say the busing program has encouraged many white people to go to private schools, whether they're Catholic schools or whether they're other private schools or else they just go to the surrounding suburbs. Boston is a very small city and it's got a lot of suburbs uh, surrounding it. So it's mm -hmm. pretty easy for people to make the decision, I'm going to go to uh, Dedham or Needham, or I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to find an alternative Arlington, uh, where I can be in a predominantly white environment. Now, to what extent do you think, you know, actually you're decreasing the amount of uh, integration in Boston because of the busing program. Rather than actually increasing it, you're actually decreasing it because people do not want their children to be Boston, so they move out of the out of the central city. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a relevant factor. Um, there's there's very convincing evidence about the you know 60s and 70s era busing really dramatically changing the racial makeup of central cities. You know, um, this is David Armour's work or uh, Leah Bustan has very nice work uh, looking at the effects of court-mandated busing on um, uh, white flight. Um, so the modern era of busing systems, at least, you know, living in Boston, you hear folks say they're upset about not getting one of their top choices in the choice system. So they uh, look at leaving and the families that can leave tend to be more well-resourced. And so um, uh, um, this raises the question, what would happen if we didn't have a choice system in Boston, if we didn't do the um, busing, current version of the busing system, would those families come back? 
Uh, and that, I think, is a great unknown here when you think about the policy implications uh, of, the, of this work. Um, um, so, so I think you're, you're getting onto a, an interesting point. You know, if they came back, you know, pockets of Boston that tend to have higher uh, white fractions are in the, the former West Zone, so West Roxbury and pockets of, of Jamaica Plain. Uh, maybe they would come back into the system and the schools there would be, um, you know, not as integrated uh, if we went back to neighborhood schools in Boston, because then the schools would reflect the residential makeup of those neighborhoods. So as a system right. overall, you might get more white students, uh, but would the schools themselves be more integrated? That's uh, very hard to know. It's hard to know, but when you only have 12% white in the metro, within the central city and the, and the busing program is going to be just for the central city and not, you know, a metropolitan wide, we've got the metro program, but that's a pretty small program. You know, it's, it's really hard to see, you know, just how much you're going to advance you know, unless you, you know, unless you say it's really important for Hispanic and black students to have a chance to go to school together rather than that, rather than not. Uh, so let me ask another uh, question about New York City, because New York City and Boston are two quite different places. New York City's uh, much bigger and it's got uh, places like Staten Island, which I don't know how you bust the Staten Island, but maybe you can. Uh, so and, you know, Queens and so forth. So. So I, I'm a little more surprised that you didn't find any results for, for New York City because it's got a significant white and Asian population. Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. The uh, white Asian fraction is about 30%. So that's about 10% more than in Boston. And uh, the scale of New York City is immense, right? So, you know, the, the old saying, one out of every 250 people in the United States is a New York City public school child. <laughs> Just to give you a sense of how how massive. No, it's a declining number. That might have been true. It used to be over a million. It's now around eight hundred thousand. So there, there's been. Oh, a, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, shift in in New York City. Yeah. Um, you know, we we see that the in terms of the effects on integration, it's quite similar to Boston, even though the scale is much larger. Um, and the achievement effects that we have are it's a pretty consistent pattern across both cities. And you know we have an explanation for that in the paper, which is if you look at the um, variation in um, the types of schools that students attend by virtue of being bused, if you, if you judge school quality by a value-added measure of the school's effectiveness, um, leaving your neighborhood doesn't do much to influence the value added of the school that you attend. So it's not that you're getting to attend a school that's much more effective by leaving your neighborhood. And that's so why is that? You would think that if people had a choice of school and were willing to pick a school some considerable distance from where they're living and make that one of their top choices, that they would be picking a school that um, was had the reputation and deserved the reputation of being a really pretty good school. So why do you think you find that. Yeah, you know, this is not something we've studied in this particular project, but I've examined that question in, in other projects. My sense is, I think it's pretty hard to know uh, what the true effectiveness of a school is. So, you know, I'm a professor at MIT, and we always boast about our graduates uh, doing so well and doing amazingly innovative things. But deep down, I always wonder whether that's because they got into MIT or whether it's because they were students in my class. And I don't know. 
Uh, and so if I'm a parent making a decision about where to send my, my child, uh, they face the same kind of dilemma in terms of trying to figure out whether school is, is effective. So um, we've done some work uh, looking at that hypothesis in New York City, actually. And one thing that we see is a pretty strong predictor of parental demand is the peer makeup of a school. So if you look at the types of kids who go to the school and how well they do, those, tends, those types of schools tend to be uh, in great uh, demand, but that's not directly related to the effectiveness of the school. Uh, it's more a, a fact about the selectivity of the school, how hard it was to get. Well, in. you know, and part of that is due to the way in which uh, teachers are allocated across schools because uh, seniority is a very important uh, factor that determines who's gonna be teaching at a school. And teachers like to teach at schools where the life of a teacher is easier. And so if a school has a reputation of being a good school because uh, it's, um, because it's uh, got students who are relatively high performing, maybe because of their family background, well, then the teacher goes there, but the teacher doesn't, just because the teacher is a senior teacher doesn't mean the teacher is a great teacher. So uh, it may be that the teaching staff is actually better in the, in the schools that don't have such talented students. I ask myself that question every day, Paul, when I'm teaching my class here, you know, I have these brilliant undergrads at MIT. <laughs> they teach me a lot. And I wonder if I'm, you know, could do a better job because uh, uh, it's such a joy teaching such bright kids. <laughs> well, we know that there's some correlation between experience and effectiveness in the classroom. So I don't want to push that point too much, but I know that there's, there's a lot of, unexplained variation in teacher quality out there. And uh, so, you know, it's, I, I understand that a good school isn't necessarily a school that looks good just because it's got some, some uh, good students living, living nearby or whatever. So now we haven't talked much about your method. Uh, and really what's really interesting is the way in which you have uh, been able to find out the effects of, of travel. So how do you do it? Yeah, um, this is something we're really quite proud of. It's something we've been working on for, for almost a decade now. You know, when you have um, oversubscription, there's some rationing happening in both in Boston and New York and all over the country. And that rationing simply means there's more applicants than seats goes through an algorithm. Um, there's different types of algorithms, um, but, what we've figured out is how to use that algorithm as an experiment generator. And it's a bit- Well, it's important that the lottery is used as the, as the uh, allocator, right? That, that's how they ration, they ration by lottery, right? Uh, well, there's a bunch of ingredients. So it's, I wish it were as simple as a lottery, like if we're judging the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine for COVID, but here there's a lottery where it depends on where you applied. So as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, people get to apply to schools as their second choice or their third choice. The algorithms also include prioritization. So if you have an older sibling at a school, if you live in certain geographic areas, uh, you get priority. New York City has what we call non-lottery tie-breaking. So many of the schools in New York during our time period, this has since changed, um, many of the schools actually rank students. So it's kind of like a, a lottery. If we think about the last kid to get in versus the first kid to not get in, that's more of a, a what's called a regression discontinuity. And you put all of this together into this black box algorithm. Um, 
And what you have is a pretty elaborate stratified randomized trial. And so what we've been working on is using these uh, algorithms as experiment generators, figuring out how best to extract all the information out of uh, these systems. And I, we think we've solved that problem in the case of lottery tie-breaking, which is Boston, and in cases where you have um, non-lottery tie-breaking in, in New York City. So what's really powerful about this is uh, if something is rationed, you have the ability to measure its effects uh, using kind of gold standard approaches in, in social science. Well, let me ask you one question on this. I, I know you've done a remarkable job here, so I'm not questioning your algorithm, but how about if you lose and you don't get your first choice? Do uh, you worry about grumpy students and grumpy parents who get stuck with something other than their first choice or their second choice, and therefore the child doesn't do as well at the school? Maybe you're underestimating the effects of of distance here because it's being offset by the fact that maybe students who have to travel are also students who are unhappy about the choice that was given to them. Yeah, uh, um, it, it's a fair question, Paul. It's something we look at in the study and we've looked at in, in other cases. Um, you know, as a background fact, um, about 80% of our applicants actually want to attend a school outside of their neighborhood. Um, and uh, you know, there's some students who, who don't get that choice and maybe they're disappointed. Um, if you try to measure, um, you know, different effects for people who are um, traveling because they want to and people who are traveling because they didn't get one of their choices, you see very little evidence of a difference. So I don't think that's a, a big part of the story here. We've also looked at this phenomenon in, in other settings. So we have a study of Denver. Denver also uses algorithms to uh, ration seats at schools and um, the question that we looked at there is, does getting your first choice matter um, relative to getting your second choice? And there's very little evidence of, of a first choice effect. Um, so I'm not too uh, worried about this. I don't think it's um, a big part of the story here. Well, that's interesting. But um, what has been the reaction of school officials to your to your findings? Have you had the chance to discuss it with them? We have, um, you know, they, they, uh, they've been very interested in um, these results. Um, in Boston, you know, the discussion about that system, you might remember, Paul, in the Boston Globe uh, about 10 years ago, a guy named Ted Landsmark, who's a pretty famous person in the Boston busing story, wrote an editorial that was titled, It's Time to End Busing in Boston. So Ted Landsmark, for your audience members who don't know, is the individual who is impaled by the American flag in the famous picture, The Soiling of Old Glory, 1976. Uh, so he was protesting in favor of busing uh, at the time. And if you fast forward to um, you know, the modern era, this in this editorial, what he says is, uh, you know, Boston is now a majority minority city. And uh, he goes on to say, uh, um, um, you know, what we're doing is busing kids to schools that are not demonstrably better than the schools in their own neighborhoods, and that's coming at significant cost to the city. In fact, Boston spends more the, per pupil on transportation than pretty much any other city in the country. Um, so That's a little unfair. It's, it's probably true. I don't doubt the fact. But they also bus all the kids who go to private schools. And they also uh, bus all the kids who go to charter schools. So they have been saddled with a lot of um, 
a lot of busing responsibilities. And then if you do it on a per pupil within the district school, you're, you're going to, you're going to, the percentage is going to go up. So. Um, yeah, it's a comp, it's certainly a complicated story, uh, uh, Paul, but, um, but I would, I think it's fair to say Boston is, is an outlier in terms of how much of the budget goes to, to transportation and, you know, what we hope that this work is um, giving some impetus to is having a broader conversation about, you know, what do we think our choice system is uh, doing? Uh, and, you know, what are the trade-offs? What are the benefits? There are some of uh, these benefits in terms of integration. So now that you talk about the cost of the system, but somehow I always want to keep my eye on the student. To me, the student is what counts. I don't care about the system. So the student is spending more time sitting on a bus. I mean, how much time do you want to sit on a bus? They're not very comfortable seats and you, you can encounter all kinds of unpleasant experiences when riding on a bus. So, you know, just, and, and could this be part of the explanation for your finding that the, those who travel a lot are spending a lot, I would say wasting their day, a lot of their day. Time is a very valuable resource for for young people just as well as it is for for you and me so so is is part of the you know one of the factors that's producing your finding here is that students are are who who are fortunate enough to go to their neighborhood school have a longer a longer day to live yeah. we, we have a way of looking at that paul it's a question a lot of people have asked us um and the way that we can look at that is we say, can we explain kind of the constellation of our findings in a very simple world where uh, the only effect of travel is to influence the value added of the school that you attend? Okay, so that you can think of as being independent of time spent on the bus, not doing your homework or getting bad influences on the bus. And we have no evidence uh, that we can reject our simple view of the, the world that um, the effectiveness, the value added of the school is, is uh, um, the main uh, mediator of, um, of, of our effects here. So, um, you know, back to you, something you said a second ago, Paul, I, I would quibble with the, the cost side. I mean, when we think about the city spending uh, roughly $2,000 per pupil on transportation, I think it's fair to ask, what would we do if we had that money back? Now it's not clear we would get all of that money back for the reasons you mentioned. It's very complicated, but you know there's uh, some evidence that uh, being able to spend money on other things uh, could uh, increase test scores and, and college going. So um, you know I think that's part of the calculation when we think about the trade-offs associated with with busing. Maybe we could recover some of those funds. Well, yeah. So the yeah the negative effects are are, are both on the system and potentially on the students. Um, so you're, you're correct to say we should look at both of these things. Um, so how popular is, is this busing program today? You, I know in the past it's been very controversial. I know we don't see any riots in the street over, over busing anymore, but do people like it? Is this a popular program or is this uh, causing resentment out there in the in the neighborhoods? You know, um, I've only read the stories of the 70s in Boston. That was before I was born. I don't think we see anything like that. And uh, But if you ask someone on the street, uh, you know, and I've only a small sample of doing this, but I would love to be able to ask more, you know, do you understand how the process works? 
Are you happy with the process? Uh, I hear pretty mixed reviews. Um, it's it's become a pretty complicated process, and you know we've had mayors try to take this on. Um, mayor Menino, this was kind of one of his final things. A former mayor of Boston, he wanted to um, bring family members closer to home. Um, this was a big effort in, in um, 2012. And um, you know that led to some reforms in Boston where they shrank the zones. You only got to apply to schools that were closer to where you live. And um, I think the jury is still out on whether that succeeded in the goals that were um, um, you know, intended. But your study could change that. I mean, there's now a, a different, uh, you know, uh, people are paying attention to well-crafted academic studies. And how about in New York City? Has there been any attention paid to, uh, I mean, MIT is right near Boston, so it's probably got some disproportionate influence there, but are they paying any attention to your work in New York City? Yeah, they have been very cooperative and, and interested in the, uh, the work in New York. I'd say broadly speaking, there's kind of two camps um, in New York uh, and, and other cities. There's a camp that wants to tinker with the existing system you know, change the way in which people can apply or put more weight on neighborhoods versus not. And then there's a camp that's thinking about changing the portfolio of what's offered. And you could think about, you know, someone said this to me very early in my career <laughs> when I was very focused on these algorithms. They said, you know, what you're really doing is just rearranging deck chairs here. And what we really should be doing is making those chairs better. And you know, that's a, a bit, I think, the tension. It's very easy, for instance, the previous administrations in New York were very concerned about access to selective testing schools like Stuyvesant and the Bronx High School of Science and, um, you know, lots of discussion about changing the admissions policy there. And it's not clear any changes there would have uh, much impact on the overall performance of disadvantaged groups uh, because those schools educate such a small number of students um, and there could be better. Well, there are more um, exam schools than just the two you mentioned, which are the very elite. But there's a second tier of exam schools out there that's a, a has a a, a more substantial uh, clientele. I don't know the numbers exactly, but they did change last year. The uh, you know they they made those into the the choice general choice system instead of. Uh, having a test in order to get into them. And this, the word I'm getting on the street from New York is that uh, the exit of, of uh, white students from the city of New York accelerated. In fact, I heard that directly from the chancellor when I had when I talked with him. So um, it's, uh, it's the, yeah, they were tinkering with, with the offerings, but were they making them better? It wasn't clear to me they were. Yeah, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Uh, actually, our co-author on this study, Clemence, um, uh, did a study of um, uh, some of the efforts to de-screen the middle schools in New York. So this happened in the Upper West Side and also in um, parts of Brooklyn and near Park Slope. And she finds evidence that, um, that de-screening, moving towards more lottery-based admissions in New York, accelerated exit. Um, so consistent with what you just said. What are the limitations of your study? If you were to say, you know, these are the things that I wish we could have done, but we weren't able to do. Um, 
what would you say are some of your limitations? Yeah, I think one of our limitations is, you know, many people ask us, well, is your study uh, an argument in favor of neighborhood schools? And they say, what would the world look like with neighborhood schools? And so uh, what we don't have is a, a pretty, we don't have a way of modeling what the counterfactual world would be if we went back to neighborhood schools. We have some crude attempts to do that. Um, you know, one way is to just run the choice process, but have everyone only apply to schools close to where they live. But what that misses, I think, is this very important force that you brought up earlier, that if you had schools that were down the street, you could walk your child to, maybe many more family members would come back to the city. Maybe the character of those schools would change in a way that we're not picking up. Um, so uh, that's something I wish we had a better way of, of approaching. Well, and... Uh... What do you think, how far can you generalize? You mentioned Denver. Do you think the results from people who say Boston and New York, who cares about them? <laughs> <laughs> of course, people on the coast here all think that's the only thing that counts, but uh, maybe the rest of the country feels differently. But it, what's your what's the generalizability from, from what you found here? Yeah, it's a, um, something we're hoping to, to explore a bit further, um, Paul. The, um, I think the one phenomena that is general, just based on some other work I've done, is if you look at the amount of value added of schools that are um, fluctuating as a result of travel, um, unless you have a system that has totally different providers like charter schools, we don't see that much movement in the um, quality of schools that are being assigned to students due to these types of choice systems. So. Uh, if I had another city, uh, like, you know, um, many cities, they have their control choice system that involves traditional public schools, and then they have a separate process for charter school admissions, um, like Boston and New York are examples of those cities. In other places, in Denver, one, one reason we were so excited about Denver is they integrated admissions both to traditional public schools and charters under a common umbrella. And if I ask about the effectiveness of the charters in, in Denver and, and that work, um, we see that people travel to attend those charters and they get a, a significant achievement boost from doing so. Um, so that's, I think, a, a different result than what we found here because they have this different provider, um, the, the charters. So maybe what we need to do is to keep the transportation system, but uh, uh, restructure the, um, the system so that uh, you would have multiple providers and then uh, you would have a, a central planning agency that would allocate, uh, facilitate the allocation of students to uh, the different providers. I mean, folks call this the portfolio model, Paul. I think we're learning a lot about this. So like New Orleans is like the poster child for this kind of idea where you have the central office manage enrollment and transportation and then we have um, school operators come in, propose schools, and you know I think in that kind of system, what's really important is if a school is not upholding what it's supposed to be doing, there is some consequence. People are held accountable. Schools are in fact closed uh, uh, in uh, places like that. Um, you know that's always the challenge, Paul, uh, going out and actually having consequences if there's something bad happening at the school. Something that's uh, um, not what you intended. And, you know, I think that's incredibly important that someone take a stand there for that model to work. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Parag, for uh, sharing uh, the results of your, your recent study with our, our listeners. It was a pleasure, Paul. Great to see you. I have been speaking with Parag Pathak, professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's a co-author of a just-released paper entitled, Still Worth the Trip? School Busing Effects in Boston and New York City. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me each Monday when an Education Exchange podcast is released at noon Eastern time on the Education Next website.